Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning again, church. Morning to you. And um, uh, just a reminder, I, um, I think you already know, but uh, we don't have any formal Sunday school running. But uh, uh, if there are younger children, there will be a teacher available um, if, uh, if there are any children who need to be uh, watched over while we have our service, uh, our message this morning, okay? Um, so, you know, one thing I, I really cherish um, about the Bible is that it has been faithfully preserved for us. It's been 2,000 years, right, since this was originally written down. Just think about that. Over 2,000 years, and yet we hold in our hands an accurate translation of what God spoke to those prophets and apostles so many years ago. So It's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable if you really think about that. I remember in university, I was challenged by um, an atheist. Um, I can't really call him a friend. He wasn't very friendly with me, but <laughs> uh, an atheist who I knew in university who, who challenged me. And um, he, he, he basically, his argument was that the Bible is no more than a game of broken telephone. You know that game where you whisper something to someone, they whisper it to someone else, and then over time, the message gets changed, right, as it's passed down through, the, through, through different people. That, that was his argument, that the Bible has, is not reliable. And as I would um, grow up and as I would learn more, I've come to realize, church, that nothing could be further from the truth. Do you realize that the New Testament alone, the New Testament that you're reading today, is based on over 5,700 Greek manuscripts? copies. 5,700, not to mention 20,000 copies that are in other languages, Latin and Arabic, and over a million quotations from non-biblical historians. I don't think Christians realize today how much historical evidence we have to believe what we believe. To give you an idea, um, Roman historians, if you take Roman historians from that same period of time, do you know how many copies or manuscripts they have remaining today, surviving copies? Between three and 200. What am I saying? It takes more faith to believe that a guy like Alexander the Great even existed than to believe that Jesus did. Isn't that amazing? I don't think we know that as Christians. Well, with so many uh, manuscripts, as you can imagine, scholars have had to put these together and, and, and come up with our translation, right? They've given us a translation, and, and there's something very important that the scholars have done that you should know in your Bible um, is they've added footnotes, okay? Anytime there was a difference between two manuscripts, okay, any differences you will find a footnote in your Bible. Have you seen these little numbers? One, two, three, right? Superscript numbers. If you've ever followed them down to the bottom of the page, what you'll, you can find the footnote there. It's all there for you. Nothing has been kept a secret. Now, I don't want to overestimate um, 
these footnotes and these variants because actually they make up less than 1% of all the words in the New Testament. Okay? Less than 1%. And, and the vast majority of these variants are spelling differences, um, differences in phrasing. So, so many manuscripts might say Jesus Christ, and there may be one manuscript that says Christ Jesus, right? So these are, these are differences that don't really have any significant impact on the meaning of the verse or the translation, okay? So why am I saying all of this? What's the purpose of this introduction? Well, because as we come to our passage this morning, John 7, verses 53 to 8, verse 11, you're going to notice that scholars have included this passage in your Bible with a footnote. You see it there? In your, in your Bible, a footnote. And if you read the footnote, it'll say that this, these verses were found in later manuscripts and not in the earliest copies. You see it there? Not in the earliest copies. That's part of the historical integrity, right? The, the, the integrity of the Bible, the honesty of the Bible. And so that's important for us to know as we begin. It's important for us to be aware of but as you're going to see this morning, and as I realized, as I, as I studied this passage uh, deeply this, these past couple of weeks, this account of the woman caught in adultery, every detail that you find here is fully in agreement with what is taught everywhere else in the Bible, okay? You're not going to get a different picture of Jesus from this text than you would in other places, right? This footnote doesn't say that actually Jesus, you know, didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't say, actually, you know, you're not forgiven if you put your trust in him, right? You actually find that everything here is consistent with what is taught everywhere else in the Bible. And in fact, John tells us in chapter 21, verse 25, a very interesting verse. Bring it up for us, brother, if you can. Um, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, okay, things like this encounter, which John did not write down. Why? For the simple reason that if he were to write down everything that Jesus did, what does he say? The world itself would not be enough to contain the books, right? That would be, if everything Jesus did was written, were written down, the world itself would not be able to contain the books written. And so, my church family and friends, this encounter, I firmly believe, has been recorded for us for the same reason John wrote the entire gospel, okay, which we've, we've covered the purpose statement before, John 20, verses 30 to 31. I believe it's the same reason we have this text in our Bible. Though Jesus did many signs, right, which are not all of them are written in this book, these are written, why? So that you may, what? Believe. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name, okay? So with that introduction in mind, uh, we want to dive into the text. If you can, open your Bibles again to John 7, verse 53. We're starting there. And, I, and I'll just set the context as we begin, just to remind you where we were. Remember last week, the Feast of Booths came to an end, right? The fe Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths has come to an end. And, and I told you last week that Jesus gave an invitation, right? What was the invitation? If anyone... Thirst, let him come to me and drink, right? And I told you that that invitation was div d divisive, right? It divided the group into those who believed and those who did not believe. And as the festivities come to an end, verse 53, we pick things up. 
they went each to his own house. Verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, what is that contrast? They, went to his, they each went to their own houses, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Well, well, it turns out Jesus, who owns the earth, right, and all it contains, Jesus, who is the author of life itself, and yet see how he has condescended to us. See the humility that while everyone else goes back to their own homes, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, right? No place to lay his head. Verse 2, early in the morning. Okay, now we're at daybreak. Okay, this is at dawn. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. If you remember last week, Nicodemus stood up and he said something to the Pharisees and to the chief priests. Do you remember that? What did he say? He tried to encourage them to do what? To give Jesus a hearing. Do you remember that? Right? To, to learn what he has done. Give him a hearing. And though the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the chief priests didn't listen, they didn't listen, here are the people. Right? Here are the people. They have come. They heard Jesus stand and invite them to come to him, and here they are. They have come to sit and to be taught. And you know, it made me, th- made me realize evangelism is more than just standing on the street corner and proclaiming the gospel, right? Like sometimes we think of evangelism as just someone standing on a street. Just pro- No, no, there's more to it. Jesus shows us here that to evangelize, to make a disciple involves sitting and teaching them right? What an example. What a blessing it is to see the women every other week gathering there, sitting and teaching one another. What an example. What an encouragement. Teaching people to observe all that God commands us, right? That is what evangelism is, right? Making disciples. It's a lifelong ministry. And the people were in for something today, right? Because they had come to hear Jesus teach, but now, because of an interruption, They're about to see Jesus' teaching, his theory, go into practice, right? His words go into action. We pick things up in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. So here come the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They're back. They've uh, regrouped, and now here they come again. And they brought to Jesus a woman, a woman, we're told, who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, verse 4, they said to him, teacher... This woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Um, You know, the sin of adultery is one that I think has become quite commonplace in our society today. I had to look this up, but but did you know, statistics say that 20% of men and 13% of women had said that they reported that they had had sex with someone other than their spouse while married. 20%, that's one in five men and 13% of women. And, 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 and some, report, some surveys I found reported even higher numbers, but I'm just giving you the, the kind of the conservative one that I think was, was best. And, and this doesn't include online infidelity. 
How many homes have been plagued by this recently, right? Like, like online affairs, right? The secret adultery of pornography. How many homes have been infected by this? And, and you know, it may not surprise you, but, but the church is not immune, are we? The church is not immune. Even though we know the seventh commandment, right? Exodus 20, verse 14, thou shall not commit adultery. We, sure, we may know that, but the statistics show that self-identifying Christians are no different than the general population. Than the general population. This marriage-destroying, home-ruining sin is what the scribes and Pharisees have brought before Jesus. For as we learn here, on the last night of the feast, right? We ended the feast just now. On the last night of the feast, we learn that this woman had slept with a married man. You know, we're not told if she was married, but if she was, for this to be adultery, that means the man was definitely not her husband. And so, this was a sin that was tearing apart at least one family, if not two, right? If not two. But verse 4 goes a step further. Look at verse 4. For not only is she an adulterer, but verse 4 tells us, what does it tell us? That she was actually caught in the very act of committing adultery, which means this woman, just, I, I just want you to, to understand, she was seized and dragged from the scene of her sin into the public's eye. We're not told if she was even dressed or if naked they brought her and just put her before all to see her guilt and her shame. You know that term in verse 3, verse 3 again, in the midst, that term where it says in the midst, it actually means at the center, okay? Which means what? That these scribes and Pharisees were actually making her a public spectacle, right? Like, like, like this was going to be the main event. They brought her right to the center such that all the attention would be on her. And if you haven't figured it out already, um, this was not a loving correction of sin, right? This was, there was nothing loving about this. This, this, this was, there was no hopes for, in these men's minds of her restoration, that wasn't what this is about, right? They were using her, as we're going to see. They were using her to, to prove a point. You know, as I was processing all of this, you know, I think it's, it's hard for many of us to relate with what this woman is going through, okay? Because it's not often that you're dragged before public, right? After being caught in the act of adultery. But I think to help us empathize or get into the, the scene here, I think Jesus helps us in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, do you know what Jesus does? He takes the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, right? And he brings it close to home. Why? Because he says, he actually clarifies or explains to us what that commandment really means. He says, if you have ever looked at a person who is not your spouse, with lust or with lustful intent, he, Jesus says, you have committed adultery in your heart. Okay? You have. And so now, church, by that standard, 
The statistics I just quoted for you are a far underestimate, right? Aren't they? 20%, 30%, that's nothing. Why? Because if that's the standard, if that's how Jesus defines adultery, if adultery really begins not with the act, but it begins in the heart, it begins through your eyes, then actually it may, that sin would include many of us, right? If not all. Now, can you imagine being caught in the sin of adultery? Okay? Now, can you imagine? The door is unlocked, right? Wherever you were, the door is unlocked, and here comes these men. They drag you from that secret place of sin, just as you were, and you're brought before your family and your friends and all to see your guilt, right? To see your shame. Just imagine looking around as everyone you know is shaking their head at you in disgust. Just imagine that. Imagine that, right? The reputation you built all these years, right? The squeaky clean reputation, all of it is gone. It's tarnished forever because they will always judge you for this hidden sin that has now come to light, that has now come to light. You see, church, she had no defense. Why? Because she was caught in the act. She, she, there's nothing she could say. She was guilty. And now, in utter humiliation, the scribes and Pharisees are going to ask for her sentencing. Okay, look at verse 5. See the terror that awaits her at, her at their hands. Look what they say. They say to Jesus, okay? They say, now, Jesus, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? What do you say? The scribes and Pharisees are referring to a verse in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The Bible never tells them to stone, but it does say this. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Take a look. Here it is. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to what? To death. To death. And you know what? I... I, I had to pause there and just let that sink in because I think we live in a society today where um, sex outside of marriage or sex before marriage is just, it's treated so casually, isn't it? Like, 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 like if you don't believe me, just turn on the TV, right? Have you watched a sitcom or a TV show or even a commercial lately? you will realize quickly that this is just not a big deal, right, to the world. And so can you imagine telling your friends or your co-workers or your neighbors or those outside the church, can you imagine telling them this? How surprised would they be to learn that the Bible calls adultery and any sex outside the covenant of marriage as sin, and not just sin, but sin worthy of death? Can you imagine their, their response? What would they say? That sounds harsh. Isn't that what they'd say? That's what they say. That sounds harsh. It'll come as a surprise. But if that's you this morning, maybe some of you are thinking that's harsh even right now, maybe those watching from home. Well, to you, I want to remind you gently and lovingly that as Christians, we believe 
the Bible is what? The very words of God, right? That's what we believe. I want to remind you, that's what we believe as a church, that's what we believe as Christians. So whether or not it fits with what society is saying today or, or yesterday or, or tomorrow, whether it fits or not, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. This is the immutable truth that God has given us. Why? To guide us to what is good, right? So, 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 so follow me here. If the Bible says that faithfulness in marriage is good, we believe it's good. Why? Because God says so. And if the Bible says that sex outside of marriage does not lead to good, we believe it's not good. Why? Because, the, because God says so. You see, you see church, I, 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 I think here's the problem. Just like any sin, it's not ultimately just between you and another person. Some people argue and they say, how is my pornography addiction? How is it hurting my marriage? It's just me and a computer screen. No, 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 no. All sin is ultimately against who? It's against God. The God who created you. What does David say? You remember King David. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, right? What does he say? Yes, her sin was against Bathsheba. Yes, his sin was against you know, her husband, but who does he say his sin was ultimately against? Psalm 51 verse 4, he says, it is against you and you only, speaking to God. Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. All sin that is committed on this, on God's green earth, is ultimately against God. It's not against the person. And here's the thing about punishment. You've heard the expression, um, the punishment has to fit the crime. You've heard that expression before, right? Um, the severity of the crime varies based on the person you have committed the crime against. Okay? Now, now I want to illustrate this for you. If I go over and punch Keith in the arm, what will I get in response? What? I might get a playful punch back from Keith, right? Or maybe even Nithya, right? That's the worst. If I go outside this church and I punch a stranger on the street, what'll happen to me? Well, I could get arrested, right? I could get arrested for battery. If I head over to Ottawa and I even try to punch Justin Trudeau, what could happen to me? I could get shot right? I could be killed on the spot by his security detail, right? Do you see the same action, but a different punishment based on the person you have sinned against? Now, how much greater then is, this, is the punishment we deserve if our sin is against the eternal God of the universe, right? That's who our sin is against, and if that is still strange to you, if you're listening to me and you think, That's, I don't, I still don't, that doesn't fit with me, I realize this is not what the world will say. Right? It's just, it's not. I realize that this is foreign to what our world is going to tell you when you leave this church. When you go and listen to what they have to say, it's going to be different. But if you want to hear what the world has to say, this is not the place to come. <laughs> is it? Church is not the place to come if you want to hear what the world has to say. This is where we come to hear what God has to say.
So regardless of what the world may think, her sin was serious, her sin was against God, and her sin deserved death. And yet, if you look back at that verse, Leviticus 20 verse 10, I don't know if you noticed, something is missing. Leviticus 20 verse 10, some, or rather I should say someone is missing, right? Who's missing? The man, yeah. The, the man she committed adultery with. Where is, like, here she is, right? She was dragged from the very act, but you've got to ask the question, where is he? Where is he? And here, church, we see the ugly um, corruption of society, right? You're all nodding your heads because you've seen it even today. Where though this man, whoever he was, right, we don't even know who he was, though he shared equal guilt with her, he committed this sin with her, he deserved the same outcome, he deserved to die with her, and yet somehow he is nowhere to be found, which means what? His crime was covered up, right? His crime was covered up. Perhaps he was a man of influence, we don't know. Perhaps he was a man of power, he had enough money to, to bribe his way, right, out of the charges. We, we, we're not told. But all we know is that it was her sin that was exposed while his remained hidden for now. Right? And I say for now to remind us that even though society is corrupt, I'm not saying they're not, society is corrupt, and sinners like this man could hide for a time, it's true, but it's a for now, because as Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, no creature is hidden from the sight of who? Of God, of the God who sees all, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, right? And so his sin was hidden for now. So, returning to the woman, she's trembling, she's here, she's in the midst of her accusers, she's in the midst of this large crowd, right? And in the midst of Jesus, of course. And in verse 6, verse 6, the true motive of the scribes and Pharisees is revealed. Look at verse 6. It says, this they said to test Jesus, to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. I don't want you to forget who these men are, right? We looked at this last Sunday, right? The Pharisees. These are the same men who ridiculed anyone who would believe in Jesus just last week, right? We covered that. These are the same men who implied that Jesus was a deceiver, right? So now you should start to realize, okay, when they called him teacher in verse 4, that wasn't a sign of respect. That was a false pretense, right? This is all part of their scheme. This is a trap. This is a test that they've designed to try to find a charge to lay against Jesus. And honestly, if you think about it, this is a really well-devised test, okay? And I want to show you this, okay? Because they're trying to trap him, and it's a very well-devised test because it seems no matter how Jesus um, answers the question, uh, they've got him, okay? I want to show you. Follow me here. Remember, the question they said is, okay, this woman has been caught in adultery. The law says to stone her. What do you say? Right? That's the question. So Jesus can say one of two things. If he says, stone her, what will the Pharisees be able to say? Well, they say, well, you lack compassion. Where's your compassion? 
Where's your forgiveness? And not just that. As it turns out, because the Jews lived in a Roman-occupied society, they weren't allowed to um, carry out the death penalty. You, you remember when Jesus died, who did, it who did it have to go through? Had to go through Pontius Pilate, right? They, because the Jews couldn't carry out capital punishment. They couldn't do that because they lived in a Roman-controlled Roman land. So actually, they could have charged Jesus with breaking Roman law if he said to stone her. That's the one hand. On the other hand, what if Jesus says, okay, don't stone her. Do not stone her. What, what would they say to him then? Well, they, they'd say, well, then you're condoning adultery, right? You're sweeping her evil under the rug like, like, like a corrupt judge. You're contradicting the law of Moses. Do, do you see the dilemma here? Do you see that this is a win-win situation for them, right? It's a win-win test, um, or so they thought. And it is at this point in verse 6 that Jesus bends down, he stoops to the ground, and he begins to do what? He begins to write with his finger on the ground, okay? And what Jesus wrote, we are not told. We're just, we're just not told, but church, how I wish I could have been there. Don't you wish you could have been there to lean in and just to kind of just get a viewpoint to see what he's writing? I'd love to know. Maybe that's one of the questions we'll ask, right, when we get to heaven. What, what did you write on the sand or on the ground? You know, some commentators have suggested that because Jesus was all-knowing, right, he's omniscient, he knows all things, actually he was writing down the sins of these scribes and Pharisees, the one, because the, he knew what they were guilty of, right, like maybe he's writing lust and, you know, lying and theft and, and, you know, fits of rage, so on and so forth. He was writing down the things to remind them that they were sinners too, right, not that different from the woman that they sought to condemn, maybe, but really we don't know. But whatever it was, the leaders are not happy. Can you imagine asking a question to someone and then all of a sudden they go down on the ground and start writing? Can you, don't do that to each other, okay? I don't want to see that after church, people all of a sudden bending down and writing on the ground. Um, it's, it, it would really frustrate you, right? If you were trying to ask a question, it's almost like when they're asking politicians questions at the front and the politician just just answer the question, is it a yes or a no? And they keep going back to their policies and their platform, and you're like, you're trying to weasel your way out of this, right? In fact, for the Pharisees and scribes, they might have thought, okay, we've got him. He doesn't know what to say. That's why he's stalling, right? He's getting on the ground, and he's, he's stalling. He doesn't know what to say, so let's, let, let's, let's, we've got him. Let's press harder. And so in verse 7, what do they do? They continue asking him until finally... Jesus stands up and he says to them, the line you all know, I'm sure you know this. Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And just like that, the wisdom of Jesus explodes on the scene. Wisdom that is far above those who in vain were trying to trap him. Are you not in awe, church? Like, does this not cause you to marvel at the wisdom of Christ? Do you know that he answered the question, right? What was the question? Stone her or don't stone her? What was the answer he gave them? 
The answer was, stone her, wasn't it? Right? His, the answer implied in his answer is stone her. Yes, the law of God is holy and true. The commandments of God are righteous and just. Romans 7 verse 12. She's guilty of sin. You say you're the witnesses. Justice demands she face punishment. Stone her. But before you do, let me qualify who should perform the execution. The wisdom of Jesus. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And with that statement, Jesus disarmed every one of them. Right? He completely disarmed them. Why? Because Jesus is telling us that the one who can judge you, the one who can condemn you, is one who is without sin. And if you think about that really hard, church, it makes sense, right? How can sinners condemn sinners? It doesn't make sense. We can't finally condemn each other. And these men, these chief priests, or sorry, these scribes and Pharisees, they were sinners. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says this, the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. So, so, so what, the, what does that mean? It's not just those who commit adultery who deserve to die. The Bible says that it's anyone who commits any sin who is worthy of death. Any sin, which includes these scribes and Pharisees, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned. And if the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, then they too deserved the very punishment that they were about to carry out against this woman, right? They deserved it. They were all convicts on death row, right? With no right to judge one another. They all deserved death. What a lesson to us, church. What a lesson to us, especially to those of us who believe Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, you have no excuse, you and I have no excuse, every one of you who judges. Why? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The very same things. Church, don't miss what God is saying to us. The next time you feel an urge to judge someone for their sin, have you first reflected on yourself and treated severely the sin in your own heart? Have you? Have you removed the hypocritical log that is in your own eye so you can clearly see the speck in another's? Some of you will reply to me and say, well, well isn't the church supposed to judge? right? Aren't we supposed to be discerning? Aren't we supposed to hold each other accountable? Yes, you're right, in love, right? These men were not doing this out of love, but the church is called to judge. We are called to discern and to, and to admonish and correct and restore believers in sin and build them up in love, in love. Remembering that we are not the final judge. You are not the final judge on any soul because final judgment rests with God alone who knows the heart, right? Rests with God. And so having said this, verse 9, when the, when the scribes and Pharisees heard what Jesus said, 
they went away. They went away one by one. It wasn't a group all at once, okay? It was one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Um, It's an interesting detail, isn't it? That the older ones were the first to walk away. What does it tell you? That with many years, with maturity, they're quicker to recognize their own hypocrisy. They should be, right? They're quicker to recognize their own sin while these younger ones took much longer to swallow their pride, right? Took longer for the younger ones to swallow pride and swallow zeal. You see, church, what happened was these men had compared themselves to the woman, right? They looked at this woman who was caught in adultery and they thought, I'm good, right? I'm a moral person. I'm a righteous person. I am not like her. And in Jesus' answer, what did he do? He told them to stop comparing yourself to her and compare yourself to my holy standard before whom they all realized, they all recognized that they were no better than her. They were no better than her. And the very stones that they were about to throw at her should just as much have been thrown at them, at them. And so they dropped their stones. They dropped the stones, and what do they do? They walked away, which is very sad. I hope you don't miss how sad that is, because they walked away. The conviction over their own sin made them walk away from the one person who could have forgiven them, right? They walked away from the one person who could have forgiven them. And so we return to this woman. You know, I, I think it's so important with these narratives to really try to picture the scene, okay? And so as I was picturing, here's this woman. She's waiting there, right? Because the Bible says that they walked away one by one right? So it didn't happen all at once. So this could have taken some time, right? As each of them are walking away. But this woman is standing there. We don't know if she was dressed or naked, but she's standing there. And I imagine that as each one of them uh, put their stone down and walked away, for a moment, she would breathe a sigh of relief, wouldn't you? Through tears, I can imagine that she's, she's, but then, but then quickly afterwards, she's gripped with fear again. Why? Because a younger one has stepped up and he's still holding on to his stone. Can you imagine how traumatizing this would have been? How traumatizing this whole experience would have been for her. But now, they've all left and she stands alone with Jesus. Jesus is still kneeling on the ground, right? All this time he's been writing in the ground. So he's in the ground, on the ground. And brings us to verse 10, okay? And Jesus stands up and he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And this is a moment, we're almost at the end here, okay? But this is a moment I really want us to take in. Because I think the heart of the message is right here. 
because it's just Jesus and this woman, right? That's all who's left. It's just, that's, that's what we're told. It's just Jesus and the woman standing there. And the law of Moses, the law had condemned her, right? We looked at that, Leviticus 20, verse 10. She was condemned by the law, but those who came and tried to condemn her to death, they've all left. Why did they leave? Because the qualification Jesus set was what? Let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And so she, he asks her, has no one condemned you? And what's her response? Verse 11, what's her response? She, she responds to him, no one, Lord. Right? She says, no one, Lord. But church family and friends, um, what this woman did not fully recognize and what I hope that you and I will not miss today is that even though all the scribes and Pharisees had laid down their stones, they've left. In fact, the most fearful moment of this woman's life was upon her now. Why do I say that? Because only now she is standing face to face before the one man in the universe who could have thrown a stone at her. She was standing in the presence of the only one who was without sin. Jesus. Jesus. How much we fear the condemnation of this world, right? How afraid you and I are of, of what other sinners can judge us when we don't realize that no sinner can finally judge you but he who is without sin, right? Only he can finally judge. Only he can finally pardon or condemn. And though she was a sinner, she was a sinner. She had broken, she was a lawbreaker by God's standard. She deserved death, yes. And though he was without sin, yes, Jesus was without sin. And he had every right to condemn her. He did. Yet in verse 11, this woman says one word, one word that changes everything. What, is he, what does she call Jesus. She calls him what? Lord. She calls him Lord. Which means what? She believed. She believed Jesus is, Jesus was, who he said he was. She believed. And as scripture tells us in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's the promise. That's the promise of God. And here is this woman claiming that promise. There's no condemnation for her, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 11 he says, and this is probably the most beautiful, imagine hearing this, okay, each one of you, with all your sin, with all the baggage you've brought today, imagine Jesus saying to you this, neither do I condemn you. Personalize it. Neither do I condemn you, Ian. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Beloved, see the compassion of Jesus. 
the compassion, the forgiveness that He offers to those who trust in Him as Lord, as Lord. But as you remember that, I don't want you to forget what we've learned in this whole encounter because His forgiveness came at a cost. Why do I say that? Because this woman, for her to be saved from her stoning, what must happen? What must happen? For justice to be served, if the law of God is true and she deserved to be stoned, what must happen? Someone who is without sin must take her place, right? Someone must pay that price. Even though he had not committed adultery, Jesus never did what this woman did in the night. He never did that but he would have to be treated as though he did what she did so that she could go free. And that, church and friends, is what Jesus has done for us, right? That is what the sinless Christ did when he hung on the cross, not for sins he committed, for the adultery you committed, right? For the adultery I committed. This is what Jesus hung on the cross to pay for, so that she could leave her life of sin. That last um, phrase in verse 11, he says, go and sin no more. It doesn't mean she wasn't going to sin again. It doesn't mean that. What it really means, what he's saying is, go and leave your life of sin. That's what he means. Leave it. It only led you to death, right? I've saved you from that. So leave it. Whatever habitual sin you continually go back to like a dog returning to his own vomit, Jesus says, leave it. Leave the life of sin and go free. So as we conclude, um, I want to share one last thought as we conclude here, okay? As I thought about this whole encounter, you know, just put yourself in this woman's shoes for a moment. This would have been the worst possible um, situation for her to ever have experienced in her life. I can, we could argue, right? Like, like this is probably the most embarrassing, most shameful thing she ever had to go through. And yet, because of this exposure, because this is how her sin was exposed, she was able to deal with it, right? Because it was exposed, the ugliness was exposed, she was able to go and find grace. What am I saying? Could it be, could it be that some of us here today know too well this woman's secret life of sin, the secret life that she was leading? No one knew, right? Prior to this event, no one would have known. And yet, here she is carrying the guilt and shame. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're trying to keep it together, right? The reputation outside is shiny. It's squeaky clean. No one would know any different. But inside, you, you alone know how dirty, how messed up it is. And maybe you're trying desperately to keep things together. It's exhausting, right? To try to keep that image clean while you're doing all this stuff in secret. And if that's you this morning... Um, there's a quote I came across from Matthew Henry who comment, who, as he's commenting on this passage and he says this and I think it's worth remembering. He says, better that our, sh our sin should shame us than damn us. Can I say that again? Better that your sin should shame you today than damn you 
moral. Better that our sin be set in order before us for our conviction than for our condemnation. Our conviction than our condemnation. Church, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. John 3, 17. Jesus came in order that we would be saved. That the world would be saved through Him, through believing in Him as Lord. One day, remember this, don't forget this as we close. One day, every one of us will be in a similar situation to this woman, standing face to face, right? Face to face, just you and Him, you and Jesus, face to face with the one person in the universe who holds the stone, right? Face to face with Him. And so as the worship team comes, when that day comes, will you truly be able to call Him Lord? To call Him Lord. Church, can you stand? And um, we thank God that um, this passage was recorded for us. We know God has a purpose, and um, as we said at the beginning, I think um, what we have here has been recorded for us for a reason, right? That we would believe, that we would believe, and by believing, we would have life. Life is available, church. Friends, those watching from home, life is available to those who call on Him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you, God that um, for this encounter, Lord, the way that we see, Lord, your wisdom, your grace, the way, oh God, that you, you were able to turn aside every other accuser and to show mercy and compassion to this woman, not to condone her sin, for you said, go and sin no more. You encouraged her as you encourage us this morning to leave our lives of sin, to return to you with repentance, not to walk away. Some of them walked away. They were convicted of their sin, those scribes and Pharisees, and they walked away from the one who could forgive them. Oh, Lord, let that not be us this morning. Let us come to you with repentance to find forgiveness and life by the blood that was shed at the cross. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.